zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Raggedy Man, released September 18th, 1981. It was written by William D. Whitliff, directed by Jack Fisk, and released by Universal Pictures. The first draft of this script came together in 1975 based on screenwriter Whitliff's childhood experiences during World War II in the small town of Gregory, Texas. Right away, in 76, a picture deal came together under the title The Raggedy Man, with director Hal Harrison, produced by Dan Greer, and Talia Shire attached to star. But none of those three names made it to the film's final credits. How much of this was a real experience? I don't know. That Gregory, Texas does exist. <laughs> That's true. And World War II also happened. Sally Field was also attached in the lead, but left to appear in Backroads with Tommy Lee Jones earlier this season. I think that this is probably the better film, though, so this maybe that totally, was a mistake. Yeah, but it totally does feel like a Sally Field film. It does, yeah. But I really like Sissy Spacek, so it's yeah, totally I think, I think totally they, they both fit this role yeah. well. After the project slowed to a stop, author Sarah Clark adapted the story into a novel, which was published in 1979, crediting Whitliff as a co-author. Production ramped back up just in time for the actor strike in 1980, but eventually shooting began in July of 1980 in Maxwell, Texas, playing Gregory, Texas, because Whitliff's hometown had modernized too much since the war, but Maxwell still looked frozen in the 40s. The budget amounted to $9 million, but the film would only bring back $1 million. Oh, really? Yeah, that's a bummer. Oh, that's a shame. We open in Edna, Texas, 1940. Headlights from a passing car wipe through a bedroom to illuminate a woman lying in bed and frame photos of her happy family, mother, father, and two boys. To make sure we don't miss the details, the shot is bizarrely slowed down, causing the motion of the headlights to imply the car is stopping, but I think it's just driving by. We cut away to a crowded bar at night where her husband, Harry, as played by Sam Shepard, collects a beer and moves to the dance floor. He drags a girl away from the jukebox, and we cut outside to find the wife, infant in her arms, looking in the window just in time to catch her husband giving the girl a smooch before ushering her kids back home. But we don't really know any of this information. It's right? pretty clear that she's looking at her husband. Is it? Yes. Yeah. She's holding two babies and cries when the guy kisses someone else and then takes them all home again. I think right. that's pretty obvious from the context. And he was in the picture in their bedroom, <laughs> and he's here. <laughs> Richard wants to give him the benefit of the doubt. No. <laughs> After opening titles, we get a title for Gregory, Texas, 1944, it's early morning, and a manager turns on the lights at a pool hall and opens the doors. Young Harry Longley rides a bike around a house with a sign above the porch that reads, Southwest Consolidated Telephone Company, Gregory, Texas. Inside, his mother, telephone operator Nita Longley, types out a message on her typewriter. It seems to be a letter to her employer reminding him of the reliable work she has provided and requesting a transfer. According to the letter, her current salary is $55 a month, or about $925 a month today. So it's shit. She gets a place to live out of it, though. That's got to count for something. It's a great place. Utilities included because... Because the utilities are the company's utilities. <laughs> a call comes in and she quickly routes it before returning to the typewriter. Her boss, Rigby, arrives out front and as he crosses the yard to the door, he is snapped in the neck by a rock, 
from a slingshot in the hands of little Henry Longley, hiding up in a treehouse. Henry is wearing an aviator helmet and goggles, and kind of resembles Carl Fredrickson's girlfriend at the start of Pixar's Up. Henry tells Rigby he's looking for Tojo, but Rigby hasn't seen him. Presumably Henry is referring to Japan's Prime Minister, who officially declared war on the United States with the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and who was removed from office three years later, around the same time Henry hit Rigby with a rock just now. When Rigby continues his walk to the house, Henry's brother Harry crashes into him with his bike, and is lectured sternly to be more careful. Inside, Rigby shouts at Nita while she's still speaking to a customer on the phone to accentuate what an asshole he already is. He tells her her kids look like idiots, and she throws it right back in his face. Well, if looks were gold, you wouldn't exactly be a rich man yourself, would you, Mr. Rigby? And she says it so sweetly that he almost can't get mad. It's like he short circuits. He can't process what she said. He collects all the receipts for the payment of local phone bills and flips through them looking for delinquent customers. She tries reminding her boss that she is having a hard time providing for her boys on the salary here, and mid-sentence, she catches Henry trying to sneak sugar from a dish on an upper cabinet in the kitchen to sprinkle across a piece of white bread. She asks what luck he's had arranging her transfer, and Director Fisk seems to accentuate her kind features by allowing Sissy to look directly into camera with this request. Her face and voice here remind me a lot of Beans, the love interest from Rango. Yeah. <laughs> Rigby thinks he found a missed payment, but she corrects him it's there. She tries one last time to request a transfer, but he tells her she is frozen, and when another call comes in, he races out the door to avoid picking up where they just left off. A switchboard operator being frozen to their job was a practice enacted in wartime to preserve essential services like communication. Many women were frozen in positions like this at the time, and they could not be transferred out of a job until the government saw fit to unfreeze the position. Does that mean, like, within the company itself? I think that the companies were kind of cooperating in a way that they wouldn't trade employees that way. You'd have to find another line of work. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, the government can't force you. I mean, to they quit. can. I guess. Yeah. I guess they can't. They could force you to be drafted. I suppose they could force you to operate a telephone. But yeah. I'm just like, you could walk away from a job potentially. Yeah, I'm. I'm unclear whether or not she could quit and just not get work somewhere else. Yeah, I think the point was supposed to be that if you were frozen in your position and you quit to go get a job somewhere else, that the next people wouldn't hire you because you quit a frozen job. And well, you're hurting the war effort. Or, or it's really just within the company. They're saying that you can't transfer within the company. That's possible, this too. Is a, this is the most important job you could be doing. Yeah. I Everything I found disagreed with the thing I found before. So <laughs> I was like, all right, I can't find a consensus on this. Later, we see Harry drag his brother Henry in a wagon to the pool hall. They spot a pair of local assholes, Arnold and Calvin, as played by Tracy Walter and William Sanderson, respectively. The kids get spooked by the men and try to run away, but are stopped on the front porch of the place. The kids ask these two why they aren't serving overseas like all the other able-bodied men of this town, so the guys play a prank on the kids as revenge. It's recently made something of a resurgence as a trend on TikTok, but the prank is this. You pour a small puddle of water on the floor and ask a kid to sit behind it with their legs stretched out on either side, and you bet them that you can wipe up the water before they can smack, or in this case stab, your hand. The kid will be waiting for your hands to move over the puddle, but instead you grab their feet and drag them forward, simultaneously wiping up the puddle with their butt and making it look like the kid has wet themselves. They promise Henry an orange crush if he wins, and they give him a knife. I bet Arnold there can wipe up that puddle before you can stab his hand. Henry, let's go. You just hold your horses. Okay, you ready? We got an orange crush on the line here. I don't want to hurt him. You're not going to hurt him? No, he likes it. Yeah, I like it. Makes my hand feel good. Oh, God. 
I had a really hard time figuring out which one was William Sanderson and which one was Tracy Walter. <laughs> yeah, they're very similar looking, actually. Uh, but yeah, it's like it wasn't until like William Sanderson spoke. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. But it was like it was like that's William Sanderson, right? No. No, it's the other one. He also has the longer hair of these two. Yeah. I could tell the difference immediately because I'm just like, it's Evie. Yeah. From Deadwood. Did you watch Deadwood? I, I never watched Deadwood. Oh it's my gosh, good. you should watch it's it. It's definitely worth a watch. But I always recognize the other one as Bob. From Batman. Yeah. yeah. They mop the floor with the kid and Harry tows his brother away on the wagon again. When Calvin leans down to collect his knife from the ground, he nearly loses his hand when a man rolls a lawnmower over the blade, and we get an utterance of the title to hint at this man's importance to the story. We never see the man's face, and he walks his lawnmower across the street with an awkward limp at a crooked angle. That night, we see Nita taking down laundry on a clothesline when another call comes in. Apparently, she's on duty around the clock. Back at the bar in the pool hall, Arnold and Calvin are meeting up again. Calvin tells Arnold he intends to ask Nita out tonight, but Arnold thinks it's a mistake. She won't go. Ain't no need to ask her. How you know that? Hell, you don't even know her. I don't care. She ain't going out with us. Nobody else neither. She keeping herself special. Are they planning on asking her out together? (laughs) I think so. It seems like they're offering themselves as a couple of boyfriends. Like, do you want to go out with us two guys? It's even weirder than agreeing to date just one of them. <laughs> Calvin insists that she's been alone so long in that house that she's probably desperate for company and she'll settle for any asshole who asks, or pair of assholes. That night, the two men park their pickup in her front yard, and after a bit of debate, Calvin gets to go to the door. At first, Nita mistakes this visit for an emergency need of the telephone, but when she realizes it's a social call, she is quick to shut it down as politely as possible. She leans on how busy her job keeps her and her role in the war effort as an excuse not to see people. She reminds him that this is also her office. All business in there, huh? Yeah. I mean, we live here, but it is a business. I guess I just have to think up some business with you then, won't I? I'm going to have to go now, Mr. Triplett. Good night. Calvin is obviously embarrassed when he turns to walk back to the truck. Before bed... She goes to Henry and Harry's room and tucks them back in. Very suddenly, a storm strikes. Deafening thunder crashes and rain pours down on the house. She lies sleeping in her bed and is awoken by another knock at the door. Naturally, we would expect this to be the pool hall jerks back to harass her, but a new voice answers from the other side of the door. I'm sorry to wake you. The man at the gas station said you had a payphone here. When she opens the door, she finds a young man will come to know as Teddy Roebuck, played by a very young Eric Roberts. This is one of his first roles, and I don't think I've seen him this young before. He looks almost exactly like Joel Kinnaman to me. Like, he looks like him, and he sounds like him, he acts like him. He doesn't look like himself, though, if you ask me. It was so bizarre, because I looked at the IMDb beforehand, and I was like, oh, Eric Roberts is in this. And then I watched the whole movie, and I'm like, where was Eric Roberts? Yeah. (laughs) I was like, oh, wait, he's one of the main characters. If this were made today, that would for sure be Joel Kinnaman, though. The man is in a sailor's uniform and completely drenched. She invites him in, and he stands by a phone on the wall and holds the receiver to his head. She sits down at the switchboard in the attached office and asks him the phone number he intends to call. She opens a small window so he can see her in the booth. She connects him with his hometown of Ardmore, Oklahoma, to reach family. She warns him in advance that the call will cost 65 cents for the first three minutes. From Teddy's half of this conversation, it sounds like he's calling his girlfriend's father, only to learn that she has moved on and started a relationship with someone new. Mr. Quinn, you're teasing me. 
No, sir. Uh, no, sir, I guess you wouldn't. Who to, Mr. Quinn? Him. Nita closes the window to give the man some privacy in his embarrassment. He takes the news as graciously as possible. Well, you must be proud. That guy's got a big reputation around town. Oh, yeah. People say he's the sorriest son of a bitch in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Nita laughs, eavesdropping in her booth, and after the conversation ends, Nita reminds him to hang up so he doesn't waste any more of his money staying on the line long distance. 65 cents seems really expensive. Yeah, because I remember in the 90s when Sprint's commercials were like one minute, two minute, it was like yeah. 10 cents a minute. <laughs> yeah, or and even pay phones were like 25 cents. When I think I was phones a kid. were just expensive to keep running at the time. Teddy counts out the 65 cents he owes and starts to head back into the rain. She stops him to offer a cup of coffee in the hopes the rain might lighten up. At first, he turns down the offer, but another crash of lightning convinces him to hang out for a second. She takes down the sugar dish, and when he worries about using her sugar, she reassures him that it won't last long in this house either way. Besides, I have to hide it or Henry will eat it by the handfuls. Henry's your husband, huh? No, Henry's one of my boys. Oh. I have two of them, Henry and Harry. Naturally, he assumes her husband is fighting in the war, but she corrects that they are divorced. Teddy's just home from boot camp for four days before getting shipped out. He'd planned on spending those days with his girlfriend back home, but she's someone else's girlfriend now. Another lightning strike knocks out the power to the house temporarily, which is almost never not foreshadowing that the lights could turn off at any moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, gotta establish it sometime. Yeah. <laughs> they officially introduce themselves over a lit candle as Teddy Roebuck and Nita Longley just as the power comes back on. The rain hasn't slowed at all by the time he's leaving, and after she closes the door behind him, lightning crashes and we can see the silhouette of a man standing in the yard here. And at this point, I think we're supposed to assume it's one of the pool hall jerks, but over the course of the film, I'm pretty sure this is the raggedy man. Yeah. By the way, I did the math conversion. That call is equivalent to spending about 13 or 14 14 bucks now on a three-minute call. Per minute. Wow. No, well, that's for three minutes. Oh, for, for the full minutes. call, right. Teddy pauses in the rain and then returns to the porch to sleep under the awning to keep out of it. In the morning, Harry and Henry find him on the porch still sleeping. They point a toy gun at him and order his hands in the air. After a second, they realize he's wearing a sailor's uniform, and being obsessed with the war, they instantly like this guy. Henry, you can put the gun down now. It's one of ours. Thank you. When Nita steps outside to rush them off the porch, Teddy apologizes for sleeping here, but she assures him it's fine. A woman carrying a baby rushes up to the house, apparently expecting an important call, and hands her baby to Teddy so she can go inside to take it. Teddy doesn't know what to do, so he just stands there holding a baby. The woman, Gina, takes the call, and once the person on the other end has verified who she is, she begins sobbing, and the baby on the porch cries with her. The instant implication is that she's just gotten some bad news from the front, but we learn quickly that things are not so terrible. Gina's husband was injured, but not killed, and he's on his way home. I mean... He could have, like, no legs, but... That's fine, I think, <laughs> compared to what she was expecting. Gina collects her baby from Teddy and hugs him, crying tears of joy. Henry and Harry agree to walk Gina home, and Teddy and Nita get some more alone time. He notices how exciting her job seems, but she reminds him it's not always good news people are getting here. Obviously, he knows that, since he got some not-so-great news last night. At least nobody died, though. Later in the day, we see Henry and Harry playing with a wind-up paddle boat in a pond, and the lawnmower man comes rattling by again. The boys aren't frightened because Teddy is here with them, but as the raggedy man leaves, Henry comments on the strange person. He's kinda messed up. Later we see Nita stitching up Henry's overalls and then sending him out for a wagon ride with Teddy. He drags the boys in circles around the yard. Apparently he's decided to spend his liberty leave here at the home rather than waste time traveling to Oklahoma. 
In between calls, Nita watches her boys thoroughly enjoying Teddy's company in the fields around their home. Later, they're all flying a kite together when Nita comes out with some laundry to hang up, and they convince her to give the kite a try. She quickly wraps it around a tree branch. Almost every time we see this kite, there's a backdrop of power lines or telephone lines, and I was sure they were just going to crash it into the lines and take all the phones out. Yeah. I was certain that this was also foreshadowing yeah. for later in the film, like the lights going out was, and this one did not pay off. Well, it kind of does. I mean, the kite comes back a little bit, but they leave it in the tree for the rest of the movie. It doesn't, it doesn't like come back. It's not relevant. No, it's just atmosphere. Yeah. Later. The phone rings again, and she heads back to work. Over dinner that night, the boys ask what the plan is for tomorrow, and Teddy admits he'll probably be on his way. The boys beg their mother to let him stay for his full liberty leave, and she welcomes his company. Hot dog! Hot dog! Mr. Calloway stops by the home to drop off a late payment for his phone bill. He's surprised to find a man in the home clearing the table with the boys. Calloway apologizes that he can't do his part fighting overseas, but laments that he has a store to run here in town. Someone's got to keep that home front going. Yes, sir. Yeah, we don't necessarily like it, but we gotta do it. Mr. Calloway probably has a bit of a crush on Nita and can't seem to comprehend that this man could be a love interest of hers. Not that he is yet. Nice boy, brother. Yeah. No, <laughs> oh, cousin, he's here, huh? Daddy. Henry. As she forces him out the door, he tells her how people might question what's happening here, and she invites him to call the woman he has a history of calling around this time every day to chat about it. <laughs> I don't feel like he's got a crush on Nina and can't comprehend it. I think it's more just like... Just neighborly assholery? Well, yeah, like I can't comprehend why you would let a, a, a man unrelated to you into your home like yeah. this. I don't know. I think he also likes visiting a woman at her home when there's no man around and he didn't like that there was another person here. Yeah. In the middle of the night, the boys have to use the outhouse and bring a flashlight to check the toilet for spiders before they take a shit. So would I. They rattle the stick around the inside rim of the seat to scare any critters away. While Nita tucks the boys in for bed, they admit they have truly enjoyed their time with Teddy and they'd like him to stick around. Oh, Toto ain't gonna get him, is he, Mama? No, I don't think so, honey. The phone starts ringing in the other room, and before she can get to the booth, Teddy is already in her seat trying his best to answer the call to no avail. He's disconnected so many wires that she can't even answer it in time, but apparently their voices still came through the phone line at some point. We cut back to the bar, and the same jerks were apparently calling the house to see if she was home. I thought you weren't supposed to have no visitors over there. That's the line she gave me. She lied to us. Arnold is so furious to have been lied to that he grabs his beer and storms out of the bar. Back at the house, Teddy tells Nita how much fun he's had with her sons today. He asks how often their dad comes around, and she says he basically disappeared. They had a messy divorce, and he signed up to fight as soon as he could, but then she never heard anything after that. Teddy can't fathom leaving this beautiful family behind, but it seems like the implication of her story is that he probably died in the war? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know why he's like, well, I, I would have come back and visited. It's like, <laughs> uh, not if you were dead. Nita gets a call from Mr. Calloway reprimanding her for making references to the content of his phone calls. She assures him, like modern-day telecarriers, that she's not recording the actual conversations, just the metadata, i.e. who is calling who, when, and for how long. He seems very nervous about what she may have overheard between him and another woman in town. Presumably they're both married to other people, and he's constantly in debt from talking to her. Teddy asks for Nita's permission to take the boys out to Corpus Christi tomorrow to see a John Wayne movie. She's hesitant at first because it's a long trip, but Teddy says they could take a bus and it's only a few miles. She relents when it occurs to her how much the boys would love it. Neither one of them's ever seen a picture show before. He invites her along too, but of course she turns the offer down because she's on call 24-7, 
and can't step away from the switchboard even for a couple hours without losing the war for her country. I mean, I don't even think she could go to the bathroom right? without it being yeah. a problem. Like, later on, she goes to buy tickets, and I was like, this is probably the furthest away from our house she's been in years. Yeah. We cut to a sort of fairground atmosphere and a crowded street decorated with streamers. Jerry Goldsmith's score gets playful and carnival-y. Teddy and the boys wander past a carousel to board a Ferris wheel over the beach in Corpus Christi. At home, Nita digs through her closet to find her nicest dress to surprise Teddy with when everyone gets back. As she cleans the house, she sings along to the Andrews sisters singing Rum and Coca-Cola on the radio. If you ever go down Trinidad, they make you feel so very glad. Calypso thing and makeup rhyme, guarantee you one real good fine time. Drinking rum and Coca-Cola. She dances with a broom alone in the house, but when she moves to the porch, the phone rings just as she spots the crooked raggedy man watching her house from across the street. She moves inside. Back on the beach, Teddy has the boys half buried in sand when a pair of fighter planes approach the festivities from the ocean side and everyone waves to the passing planes excitedly as they do a low flyover. We cut right from these planes to similar planes in a black and white film. At first I assumed this was newsreel footage before the movie, but this is actual footage from 1942's The Flying Tigers. John Wayne is depicted as the pilot of one of these planes. The kids are a bit spooked by the action and cover their eyes with their hands just as one of the pilots takes a bullet to the face. As they should be. These kids yeah. have never seen a movie before and they're watching somebody get shot in the face. Yeah. We cut back to the house where Nita is taking a bath and the pool hall jerks have shown up to spy on her through a window. <laughs> I wanted to call them the pool hall flunkies. <laughs> but that's a weird reference to yeah. pool hall junkies. Yeah, it's like, it's like I think maybe you and I know about that movie. Yeah. But- As she steps out of the tub, someone suddenly leans on the horn of their pickup truck, alerting Nita and scaring the men back to their truck. Oh, I don't think he just leans on it. I think he sabotages the truck. Yeah, exactly. But at first I thought he was just leaning on it. There's nobody at the truck when they get to it, so they swing it around to leave, but the horn is still blaring, so someone must have activated it from under the hood. As the headlight beams pan across her yard, Nita sees a man silhouetted in them and steps back from the window. The kids are both asleep by the end of the movie, as John Wayne says a final farewell to his girl. She's my pigeon. Bye, pigeon. Nita is still watching out the windows when the sheriff stops by to inform her that he can't find anyone outside the house. She mentions the raggedy man, and the sheriff seems familiar. You mean Bailey? Face all bugger up? Well, I never saw that. Oh, I think he's all right. Obviously, before this moment, we are led to believe that the raggedy man is her injured husband home from the war and watching over his family from a distance, so the sheriff using a name she doesn't seem to recognize for the man throws us off that trail momentarily. Oh, I never thought about that the, never, entire, the entire course of the film till the end. Because his yeah. name is not Bailey, and for some reason the sheriff knows this man is Bailey. Yeah. And she doesn't seem to know. Who yeah, I'm just saying yeah. that before this moment, I didn't get, I didn't give it a second thought that this was anything other than a, just a creepy dude around town spying on a lady who lives alone. Oh, I thought from the beginning that it was her husband, and then he calls him Bailey, and I was like, oh, okay, maybe I was, maybe I was reading too much into it. Uh, I'm with, I'm with Jesse. I never, I never thought anything about this guy. Oh, okay. I think if you if you live your life as a woman like Richard and I do, you just assume that every creepy dude is just there for you they had no relation well, that makes sense 
Like, oh, I'm always hanging around this place. And yeah. Patrick always assumes creepy dudes are his ex-husband. <laughs> right. Got a lot of them. Before he leaves, the sheriff tells her that it was probably just dudes jerking off to her naked body. That's all. <laughs> the sheriff tells her that she has to expect that kind of attention because Calloway has spread the word of her younger male visitor as she has no business entertaining a second man after divorcing a first one. This town doesn't own me. Well, people are wondering what kind of deal you run over here anyway. This is a telephone office. They want to feel like they can depend on you. So far, the only call she has missed was yesterday when the peeping Toms called and immediately hung up. She's been nothing but dependable so far. And how did they call? The, uh, There's I, a phone in the bar that they just let people use? Yeah, it was like, wait, they charge 65 cents for the phone down, down the way, but, but apparently anyone can just call from the bar. Well, I mean, they, they probably might have paid, paid for the guy. it too, but yeah. still, it's like, why is there people knocking on her door all night when they could go to the bar? Because that's she she provides a service. It's like, that is the payphone. Oh, okay. But they're all payphones. Yeah, but I'm just saying that that is the official payphone as opposed to going into the bar and, and bothering this guy. Yeah, and saying, hey, do, can I use your phone? I, I, I just got the impression that this was like the only phone in town. Like, cause well, it's clearly not the only phone in town if other people are paying her to connect them to other people in town. Within that town. Yeah, yeah. that is weird. Uh, yeah. Oh, I, when I thought I thought the delinquent charges were for people who came to use the phone but couldn't pay at the time and had IOUs. That's what I thought. The, oh, that's po- I guess that's possible. I don't know, though. I, but I, I, I think it's just any connection. Because I, I don't think that... Because she's the top of the tree in this city. So right. Yeah, but I think she, she connects two phones to each other just in the same way that she might be the end user for one of those phones. Like, mm. it doesn't... That makes sense. Sometimes she's in between two calls yeah. that aren't there. As soon as the sheriff leaves, the phone rings. We cut away to a bus rolling up to the station as Teddy carries Henry and walks with Harry back to the house. We get a reprise of the fairground theme as Harry thinks back on the day's adventure. The boys are both in matching sailor outfits now. I don't know if I mentioned that before. I don't know if they were wearing that in the theater. Uh, th- yeah, they were wearing it like since they got to Corpus Christi. For the I whole feel. party, yeah. But like he, uh, he purchased these outfits. Right, they yeah. Didn't, they didn't bring them with them. Correct. At home, Nita tucks them in and then returns to the kitchen for a candlelit drink with Teddy. He presents her with a wrapped gift he got her out of town. It's a pair of rayons. Rayons. Uh, well, they're rayons. But the, the lady at the store said they're just as sure as nylon, so... Nita slips a hand into one and holds it in front of the candle to show off its transparency. Oh, they are. Look how sheer they are. Teddy grabs her hand in the rayon and pulls her close enough to kiss. They stand and dance around as they continue kissing. Of course, the phone begins ringing incessantly to break up the dance. Nita turns to flick off the machine and comes back to him. They dance and kiss and swirl through the house into the bedroom and sit down on the bed. We cut outside to the raggedy man in the yard and crickets chirp wildly to accentuate the hard cut. We get our first good look at his face and it's Sam Shepard again, her husband from the cold open. Well, I didn't recognize him as being the same guy, but I I did recognize him as being, I think, wounded here. Yes. This is where we see that he's got something funky happening with his eye. So I'm like, now I'm getting it. He did go to war and he got hurt. And now yeah. he's watching over him. But I, I do think he's pretty identifiably Sam Shepard here, if, if you know what Sam Shepard's face looks like. Yeah. When he turns to walk away, the left side of his face, at first completely shadowed, is visible. And we can see that it is badly burnt, or as the sheriff would say, all buggered. The raggedy man disappears into the night. 
The next morning, Henry and Harry, still in their sailor's outfits from the night before, are goose-stepping around the front yard shouting Heil Hitler, much to the disgust of some passing neighbors. They've even drawn little mustaches on their faces. Heil Hitler! One, two, three! Heil Hitler! One, Morning, Miss Pod! Miss Mila! Heil Hitler! Boy, stop that! Yeah, I was like, man, it seems like these kids and Teddy are constantly trying to sabotage her life. Yeah, it also feels like she should have been more forceful in her, like, stop impersonating Nazis in the front yard. Uh, Because there was a bit earlier where, like, she's on the phone connecting a call and Teddy's, like, talking right to her and she has to cover up her mic. It's like... Does he do that too? I remember. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was like, it's like, dude, quiet. You know how this technology works. Yeah. Teddy leans out the front door without a shirt on to explain that the boy saw (laughs) marching Nazis in the newsreel before the John Wayne movie. She's immediately concerned that her neighbors are seeing him shirtless leaning out of her home. Couldn't you have just stayed inside? What? Hi, how you doing? Well, I never. I'm sorry. I really like the concept that these old ladies don't have anywhere to go. Right. They're they just probably walk just past her house. walk past her house. Yeah. I can't imagine anybody in the 40s thinking that, like not thinking about the fact that he was shirtless hanging out of a woman's house who he wasn't related to. Like that's just. Yeah. That, that's unfathomable. Yeah. She explains to Teddy that she's already getting shit from other people around town for having him here. And this is only going to make it worse. Later, we see Teddy shopping with the boys. He gets a bag of groceries and sets it in the wagon with Henry before they start walking back home. He tells Harry to take over wagon dragon duty, and then he hops into the post office to collect Nita's mail. Unfortunately, on their way home, the boys are intercepted by the pool hall flunkies. I'm just going to go with it. Fine. They pick on the boys for their sailor's outfits and offer to finally buy them that orange crush they offered a few days ago. Harry isn't impressed with the offer, but Henry thinks he's going to get a drink out of it, so he agrees to join them in the bar. Henry, I said no! You're not the boss of me! They put Henry up on the bar top with his drink and pepper him with questions about his mother. Harry comes in to collect his little brother, and the men snag him too. Teddy happens to be passing by outside, and he hears Harry struggling against them. Don't you butt whip! No, he don't. Teddy! Teddy tells Harry to wait outside while he takes care of these men. He tells Henry to climb down from the bar, but Arnold won't let him move. So Henry kicks him in the crotch, and a fight begins. Surprisingly, a couple random bar patrons join the fight on Teddy's team because they've had enough of these two chuckle fucks bothering everybody. But also probably because he's a man in uniform. And also, yeah, yeah, well, yeah that's part of it. And, and they're clearly they're in wrong. Children. Yeah, exactly. When Arnold grabs a pool cue, Harry tackles him around the legs to give Teddy a chance to defend himself. The bartender watches everything silently, but then makes a move for the back room. Teddy could probably have taken one of these men by himself, but both together are proving a worthy opponent until the bartender pulls a shotgun on everybody. He fires a warning shot into the wall, and then in Spanish, he tells them to get the fuck out. He also calls them brothers here, which I didn't gather before, but maybe he didn't mean it literally? No, I, that, that's what I was saying before. I was like, like I couldn't tell them apart, and I feel like it was really good casting. Yeah, like, I, I definitely cast- can tell these two apart, but I think they are supposed to be siblings. Teddy stands bloodied to walk the boys home, and I might have waited a bit before going outside, assuming the men would just be waiting for me out there. When he gets back to the house, Nita treats his bruises with whatever first aid materials she has. Looks like it stings, whatever it is. 
She lectures the boys for going into the bar in the first place, and Harry, the good older brother, doesn't mention that he told Henry to stay out and he wouldn't listen. The phone rings and Nita steps away. Teddy assures the boys that their mom seems mad now, but she was just scared. He asks them to shine his shoes outside so he can talk to her. Obviously, she can't let them roam free around town either. God, I feel so... so caught. Teddy urges her to seek employment elsewhere, but she mentions that she's frozen here. Teddy doesn't think that's legal, and maybe it's not. I couldn't find a definitive answer. <laughs> she compares her situation to his contract with the Navy, but he's excited to serve and has no problem going wherever they send him. She asks him to leave today, one day early, because she can't manage this situation any longer. She needs to focus on her kids again and take care of them herself. Because Teddy is a mature adult, unlike the pool hall boys, he graciously accepts her request, collects his shoes from the boys, compliments their work, and starts packing his stuff. Teddy tells her someday he may knock on her door again, but just as he tries to profess his love to her, the phone rings and she rushes to answer it. He doesn't wait for her to get off the line before he walks out. He tells the boys in the yard that he was called in a day early and he's on his way. Again, being a mature adult and taking care not to throw their mother under the bus and cause more problems for them. The boys are tearful to see him leave. You don't have to go. And that delivery reminded me of Henry Thomas's E.T. audition with Spielberg. Yeah. Where he's officially told he got the part. I'm afraid I have to, son. You can't take him away. He's mine. But it's not my choice. The president asked me to come here and get him. I don't care what the president says. He's my best friend. And you can't take him away. He tells the boys he'll name his shoes after each of them. The boys agree to take care of Nita, and he walks off down the road. He turns back to offer a salute and quote John Wayne from the part of the movie the kids slept through. Goodbye, pigeon. We see Teddy get a car ride out of town, and as soon as he's off and down the road, Arnold and Calvin step into frame in the foreground and share an evil look with each other. I really like that she doesn't get the reference because she didn't <laughs> None of them see do. the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> just for him. <laughs> it's just like, what? Over dinner that night, it seems Harry has seen through Teddy's ruse. Did you make Teddy leave? Eat your supper, Harry. Harry. Eat. She stupidly admits that he was going to have to leave tomorrow regardless, and now the kids are furious with her for having robbed them of their last day with the closest thing they've had to a dad. They tell her they won't follow whatever rules she tries to set for the house because of what she's done. You're going to do what I tell you to do, young man. I'm your mother. You're not a mother. You're a telephone operator. I know you're upset, Harry, but things don't all... You made Daddy leave, too! Don't talk to me in that tone of voice. I t tone of voice? Yeah, don't these words are don't terrible. Don't say these words. I don't care what tone you're using. That is cruel and horrible thing to say. They claim they want to live with their father, and she says if their father wanted them so bad, why hasn't he visited or called or even written a letter? <laughs> or appeared randomly in windows or in yeah. fields. <laughs> he wants me and Henry. He just don't want you. She sends them to bed and sits exasperated alone in the kitchen. Hours later, she comes to them in their bed to tuck them in again. She sits back down at the switchboard and puts in a call to Mr. Rigby. Yes, sir, I do know it's late. The next day, her boss's car comes rattling into the driveway. Again, the boys attack him on his way in, this time wearing big cardboard wings and pretending to be fighter planes. She presents him with the letter she's been working on. Rigby keeps reminding her there's a war on and she's frozen for a good patriotic reason, but she's had enough of that excuse. She cuts to the chase and announces she will not work this job anymore, so he could transfer her or lose her completely. She phones the telephone company to announce that this switchboard is shutting down. 
When Rigby reminds her again that there's a war going on, she explains just how much more aware she is than he is about the sacrifices people are making right now. She has to see firsthand the family's going through loss, and all he has to do is come here once a month and fiddle with the bills. It all comes through here. Tommy Patterson got his arm blown off, and Billy Patrick's coming home in a box, and Charlie Jones isn't coming home at all because they couldn't find enough pieces. So don't tell me nothing, Mr. Rigby. I hear the wives and the mamas and the daddies crying and saying, no, 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 I hear it. Day in and day out, I hear it. So don't you stand there and tell me there's a war. I can tell you plenty about there being a war. He orders her to disconnect before she can officially close down the operation of this switchboard. I just want to say that I really appreciate that you do the accent when you're doing Even though your... I'm replacing the <laughs> yeah. line with the recording. <laughs> I do my best. Sorry you're missing out, listeners. He says he'll make it so she can never work again. Do what you have to do. He hangs up the phone before she can close this branch, so she just quits right there. He admits here finally that she is not frozen, that he's been lying to avoid transferring her, and it turns out she's not making enough to be frozen. Though, according to a line on IMDb Trivia, all telephone operators were frozen, regardless of pay. So I'm not sure who to believe here. You're not frozen. You do that to this is a company, Nita. I've got responsibilities. A company. <laughs> when it finally clicks in her head what he's saying, she is furious and leaves. Abandoned at the switchboard, Rigby is forced to answer a sudden call. She collects her boys from the front yard and they walk off to town. I wonder how long it's been since she was able to wander this far away from her house. I guess the kids do all the shopping for her. Like... People in town must not even know what she looks like if they don't use this phone. Yeah. Just those two ladies that cross by in front yeah. of her house all the time. Yeah. She walks into the bus depot to order tickets on a bus to San Antonio for the three of them tomorrow morning. One way. The tickets for the three of them cost $6, which is less than Greyhound probably charges for the convenience fee of buying your tickets online now. $6? <laughs> but that's like, like, uh, like 30 minutes worth of phone calls. Yeah, that's a lot. When they arrive back home, Rigby is red in the face from having to operate the switchboard alone for 25 minutes. Nita Longley, don't you ever, ever leave me sitting there again. Who the hell do you think you are? I'm the lady who just quit this job. That's who I am. He calls her bluff and drives away without another word. Nita calls the boys inside to pack for their trip. She tells the boys she'll get a job on a military base because they need typists and she can type like a motherfucker. She actually types really slow. <laughs> We've seen it. She catches Henry climbing Sugar Mountain again and pulls him off the cabinets. The mood between them is overjoyed now, excited at the potential their future holds. The scene ends in a tickle fight on the floor and we cut to that night at the house. Harry crosses the yard with a flashlight to check the toilet for spiders before dumping. <laughs> the score gets sinister as Calvin and Arnold show up. Uh, I'm, I was really like pleased with my note here that Calvin and Arnold come calling for her. Ah, <laughs> phone yeah. call, phones, phone calls. Nita awakens to a hard knock at the door. Unfortunately, it's Arnold at the door this time, and she's never seen this man, so she doesn't know it's one of the men that's been harassing her children or beating up her boyfriends. <laughs> Singular boyfriend. He claims he needs to use the phone, and she lets him know that it's closed for business. She relents and lets the man inside. While Nita sets up the phone, Calvin sneaks in through the back door. We see the raggedy man's hand lock the outhouse from the outside to keep Harry safe in the yard. Why is there a lock on the outside of the outhouse? I don't know. Just to fuck with people? <laughs> 
I mean, I guess to keep critters from getting in, like like raccoons and stuff. I guess maybe. But it seems like it would it would be a like on both sides. Like the mechanism would be go all the way oh, to the door. Oh, that's probably true. Yeah. But then he'd be able to open it. Correct. Yeah. And now is it the raggedy man that locked yes, him in Yes, because it's a like melted fingers in a oh. torn sleeve. Okay, I couldn't see. I mean, this is all happening late at night, so it's yes. pretty dark. Nita asks Arnold for the number he wishes to call multiple times and gets no answer. I don't have a number. Well, then, uh, what's the name, please? I'll have to look it up. He whispers through the window into her booth, and sensing the danger, she locks herself in the small room. As she backs away from the door terrified, she is grabbed from behind by Calvin, who snuck in the back way. I told you I'd think up some business with you one of these days. Didn't I? She tells them she'll call the sheriff on them, but before she can connect any lines, Arnold shorts the switchboard with his knife and breaks all the equipment. The men corner her in the office as she begs for mercy. They promise to leave her boys alone as long as she doesn't put up a fight. The raggedy man appears in the yard. This time we get a good long look at his scarred face. The skin is melted all away and his eye bulges from within the scar. The men drag her beside her bed and Calvin holds her while Arnold unbuttons her shirt. They tell her to dance for them. Make him bounce. No. When she refuses to follow their instructions, they smack her down to the bed. Outside we can hear Harry fumbling with the door to the outhouse, calling to his mother for help escaping. He's like, Mom, it stinks in here. You don't know what I've done. Let me out. You don't know where I've been, Lou. No, there's only one way out now, buddy. You're going to have to, like, Shawshank You're this one. You're going to have to slumdog millionaire your way out of here. Suddenly, the lights go out in the house, and the men assume the sailor is back. A truck pulls up to the front of the house and blasts its headlights at the porch. Arnold creeps around outside and is cracked over the head with what looks like a shovel. So whose truck is this? The raggedy man did this. He pulled up. He has a car? It. I think he's fucking with their car again. I think he moved their Ah, truck from where they parked it down the street, and he pointed the headlights at the house. Nita takes this moment to try to escape, but Calvin grabs her and wrestles her out the front door onto the porch into the light of the newly parked car in the yard. Seems like a bad idea. It's like someone just moved that car. They could still be in it. They could try and crash into you there. Henry comes to check on his mother at the front door, and she slips inside with him and slams the door on Calvin's hand when he comes after her again. She asks Henry where Harry went because he's not in his room, but Henry isn't sure. In the outhouse, Harry hears someone coming and calls to his mother again. Calvin opens the door, but before he can reach in and grab Harry, he's attacked by the raggedy man and dragged away. Harry makes a run for the front door and pounds on it, but Nita grabs him from behind to lead him around the house until she is tackled to the ground by Arnold. Harry uses his flashlight to bash Arnold over the head for a while until raggedy man picks Harry up and then tears Arnold off of her. Unfortunately, in their fight, Arnold lands on top of Raggedy Man and appears to stab him to death. Nita rushes the kids inside and locks all the doors. She hugs her children tight. At the front door, they see a shadow of a man fill the window shade, gripping a knife in one hand. Nita hides the boys and then picks up the typewriter by the door. She stands ready to attack the man when he enters, but just then, another shadow, wielding a sickle, appears behind Arnold's. The shadow raises his weapon high and slashes down at the intruder, whose body falls through the window in the door. I really wanted Nita to just drop the typewriter on the guy anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck you. Nita walks across the room to her children and huddles with them on the floor in the dark. Sometime later, she steps outside to investigate the scene when she hasn't heard anything in a while. The first body she finds, aside from the one sticking out of the door probably, is Raggedy Man's, and on closer inspection, it's her husband Harry, apparently going by the name Bailey now. 
She grips his melted hand and cries over him. Yeah, I, I was just like, what? I, like, I don't know. Like, this whole thing was just, like, weird to me. What, that he was dead there? Well, that 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 the, the raggedy man ends up being the husband. Oh, I thought it made, they were hinting at it the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I, I figured it out about halfway through. But I think that it's still weird that he was there at a distance and wasn't bothered by like the whole teddy thing and all that mm. but he's but he's there to protect I, her in this moment i think he cares about them a lot i think that when he left he was young and he thought he was going to go get somebody better and he was going to go have fun with his life and then the war happened so he signed up to go to battle and he got hurt really bad hurt badly enough that he didn't feel like anyone would ever love him the way he looked anymore yeah and he realized what he had with her and the kids but he didn't want to disgust them by coming back and having this ruined face so he just stood by so he kept his distance and he decided he was going to take care of them i think the reason he let teddy hang out is because teddy was a good guy yeah and he and he could sense that about him he watched the guy play with his kids all day you know that first day at the pond he watched them he saw how they were interacting and he knew this guy was trustworthy but but two other times these bar guys hassled the kids and he did nothing. It can't be everywhere at yeah. once, Richard. He, he wasn't. He's <laughs> he not, was there he's not though. Magic. When he's was he? When raggedy. was he there and didn't do anything about it? When the the, the puddle thing, because because he walked. He by. came by right after. He showed up at the end yeah. and he tried to mow one of their hands off for fucking with the kids. Hours later, the cops arrive to investigate the scene. Impossibly, the family are still allowed to board their bus and leave town that morning, despite certainly being part of a local murder investigation. On the bus out of town, Harry concludes from whatever he was told that his father must have loved them after all. They hope to see Teddy again someday, and Nita does too. Credits roll over the bus driving off down the road to the horizon. It's like, I don't know how they're going to see Teddy because Teddy doesn't know where they've gone. Right. He told them he was going to come back to this house and yeah. knock on the door at some point. He was like, he was gonna, yeah, what happened to the people in that house? You mean the house of the murders? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, three people got killed here. What, three? <laughs> <laughs> like the day you left. <laughs> <laughs> oh that sucks whoops um yeah this this was fun i liked it um i think the the structure of the story works really well i think that probably this guy was working on it for a while because it just feels very well balanced all the characters are great i think the performances are wonderful from everyone yeah i i give it a thumbs up i honestly have no complaints about this movie yeah. I, I thought it was pretty solid all the way through didn't like it oh. i don't like it is that a thumbs down? It's a thumbs down for me. Yeah. I, I I don't know. Like I, I you like the score though, right? Uh, Not just because you like Goldsmith, but yeah, I like some of the score. I really liked the music in this, like more but, than I feel like I've liked anything from 1981 specifically. But uh, I, I don't know. Like I, I just I couldn't get into it. I I I I don't know. I, I really don't have any defense of why I didn't like it. Oh, okay. Um, because uh, it, it was just. The turn was uncomfortable for you, and the fact that they don't end up together did that bother you? Uh, that didn't bother me. Like, but I didn't know what where the story was going because because I don't I don't feel confident that she's going to find work. Like, I, I don't feel like that there was some oh, kind I do. of triumphant. I, I just feel like that they're winging it, and I was like, okay, well, I guess that's a happy ending. Well, the, the bases all over the country were hiring people though for the kind of work that she's capable of. Well, and I think that it was just about her making that dedication to be part of her, more of a part of her kids' lives right. because she wasn't tied to the telephone. And also she gets to interact 
uh, with more people, I think, on a on a military base than she does in this house where she can't even, like you said, she can barely take a crap without getting fired over it, you know? So she doesn't get to talk to people. She just gets to help people talk to each other. But yeah, I really liked it. Um, thumbs up for me. Do we know where this is going letterboxed for you guys? Uh, so I had it fairly high because um, I, I didn't really have anything bad to say about this movie. Uh, I have it at number... 19 out of 123. Okay. It is... I scrolled away from it. One second. It is below Eye of the Needle and above Miss 45. Okay. Richard? Uh, I have it at 51, uh, which puts it below American Pop, but above Tim. Okay. Um, I have it at 45, which is just under The Burning and just above Bustin' Loose. Our director here was Jack Fisk. Fisk is primarily a production designer known for his collaborations with Terrence Malick, Brian De Palma, David Lynch, and Paul Thomas Anderson. He met his wife, Sissy Spacek, serving that function on Malick's Badlands, and together they have two daughters, Skylar and Madison. Skylar appears in Orange County as the love interest of protagonist Colin Hanks. Hmm. This was his directorial debut, and he followed it in 86 with Violets Are Blue, and in 90 with Daddy's Dying, Who's Got the Will? The writer here was William D. Whitliff. Last year, he wrote Honeysuckle Rose. Later, he writes Legends of the Fall and The Perfect Storm. So, a lot of movies I like. The novel was adapted from Whitliff's book by Sarah Clark. Other than this, she just has a couple photo researcher credits, so not much. Music was from Jerry Goldsmith. He's the composer of the first James Bond adaptation, Climax episode, Casino Royale, in 1954. He also scored In Like Flint, Capricorn One, The Swarm, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Magic, Alien, and then for Joe Dante, Gremlins 1 and 2, Explorers, Interspace, Matinee, and The Burbs. He scored Secret of Nim, Ghost in the Darkness. So far we've discussed his work in The Ballad of Cable Hogue, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Cabo Blanco, Omen 3, and Outland. And we've also heard his work in Louis Letizia's recent Patreon pick of Boys from Brazil. Cinematographer Ralph D. Bode looks like he started in adult films but ended up lighting Saturday Night Fever, which led to working as the DP of Coal Miner's Daughter and Dress to Kill so far on the show. Later, he DPs Uncle Buck and Don Juan DeMarco, among others. Editor Edward Warshilka cut Harold and Maude, Brainstorm, Sixteen Candles, and Rambo 3. And here's a weird fact. Unless IMDb is mistaken, he edited Child's Play. No, not that Child's Play, but a Sidney Lumet film from 1972. And then 16 years later, he edited child's play yes that child's play <laughs> about the killer doll chucky he edited two films called child's play that were unrelated <laughs> as well as a sequel to the killer doll version of the film sissy spacek played nita she was also in badlands carrie and three women she has an oscar for loretta lynn and coal miner's daughter last season and then we saw her as carolyn cassidy in heartbeat later she's in the man with two brains jfk blast from the past the straight story and the 2002 tuck everlasting and my favorite role is her as the mom in Hot Rod opposite Ian McShane. <laughs> so they've both worked with EB. That's fun. Eric Roberts played Teddy. This was his second feature after King of the Gypsies in 1978. We'll see him next in Star 80 about the murder of Galaxina actress Dorothy Stratton. He might actually be best known for being Julia Roberts' brother, if not for being the father of Emma Roberts. He shows up in Spun, The Dark Knight, and he also plays a talking cat in <laughs> A Talking Cat. <laughs> Sam Shepard was Bailey, a.k.a. Harry. We saw him last as Cal in Resurrection. He's back later for The Right Stuff, Steel Magnolias, The Pelican Brief, Swordfish, Black Hawk Down, and The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. This had to be one of the easiest roles for him. Yeah. 
Uh, like half just the time, wander around, just, just walk around, walk from here to there. Done. Well, most You're... of his time was in the makeup chair, probably. William Sanderson played Calvin. Uh, he is J.F. Sebastian in Blade Runner. He's Skeets in The Rocketeer. But I always think of E.B. Farnham from Deadwood. He was also Sheriff Bud Dearborn on True Blood. We saw him in Coal Miner's Daughter as a moonshiner who tries to recruit Doolittle. And more recently as Ned Warren, one of the men after the bounty on Chuck Bronson's head in Death Hunt. Tracy Walter played Arnold. He's Bob the Goon in Batman 89. We've reviewed his work so far in The Hunter and The Octagon last year and Getting Wasted in a belated minisode this year. Most recently, we saw him as a cop in The Hand, the one who opens the trunk and finds the bodies in it. R.G. Armstrong played Rigby. He is Big Bear in White Lightning, Sheriff Taylor in Race with the Devil, General Phillips in Predator, Louis Vendretti in six episodes of the Friday the 13th series, Pruneface and Dick Tracy, and The Old Man on Millennium. We've seen him so far as Quitner in The Ballad of Cable Hogue and Judge Simpson in Where the Buffalo Roam. Later this season, he's back for The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper and Reds. Henry Thomas was Harry. This is his first film. He's best known for his follow-up feature appearance in Spielberg's E.T. Later, he's in Cloak and Dagger, The Quest, Psycho 4, Fire in the Sky, Legends of the Fall, and he's Johnny Sirocco in Gangs of New York. There's a lot of Richard's favorite movies in this batch. Yeah. <laughs> Good yeah. for him. Well, well, and he's also pretty much in every Mike Flanagan project oh, right, that yeah. he's had. So, like... Haunting of Blind Manor, even Doctor Sleep. He was the bartender, right, in uh, Doctor Sleep. Well, he's yeah. I mean, I don't want to spoil. Oh no, he's the Jack Nicholson. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He he's playing Jack Torrance yeah. as as the bartender, as yeah. Jack Torrance. Yeah. Ed Gildart played Mr. Calloway. He was Frenchie in Future World, electronic store owner in RoboCop Two, and security guard in Rushmore. Bill Thurman played the sheriff. He was Coach Popper in Last Picture Show, Hunter in Sugarland Express air traffic in close encounters and we saw him last season as aura haley in tom horn susie mclaughlin played gene lester i don't remember gene lester gene uh, lester oh is that the, the lady who comes with and the baby gets yeah. the sad news or happy news she was a female reporter in best little whorehouse in texas and more recently she was mrs pebworth in bernie you ever see bernie i never saw bernie it's fun jack black yeah it's like a mix of documentary and drama because they used footage interviewing people about the real character of bernie mm. and they splice it into this fictional story it's good it's not about bernie madoff no <laughs> jesse lee fulton played miss pud she was miss mosey in last picture show she's miss ollie in paper moon she was jane st Clair in don't look in the basement from the makers of last house on the left mrs knockler in sugarland express and becky in resurrection lubel camp played miss beulah she was grandma bonham in honeysuckle rose last season James N. Harrell was the ticket taker. He was Sam Holland in JFK. He's Cutright Manager in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Doc Lurkin in Resurrection last season. He played a minister in Urban Cowboy. He was Mark Fenno in Spielberg's Sugarland Express and the minister in Paper Moon. Desmond Doog played Cotton Candy Man in Paper Moon. So we have a few people from Paper Moon in this one. Um, and that's fun because I like that movie a lot. And it looks a lot like this place so they probably just cast locally from texas that's uh, that's what i'm figuring a lot of people like a lot of sugarland express people yeah so. like we're gonna see even more of it in our next movie because it's shot in florida and it's just all the florida movies we've covered but yeah i think that's everything for raggedy man if you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share we are vintage video pod on twitter facebook instagram youtube and letterboxd Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. 
Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Super Fuzz, which IMDb describes like so. Red powder from a nuclear explosion gives a police officer superpowers as long as he doesn't see anything red. He is eventually framed for murder and is unsuccessfully executed by many different methods. It's weird details to include in the summary. Yeah, yeah can we just skip that one? I feel like you covered it all. There's, there's more to the story. No, no, there's not. And uh, I, I'm not sure I, I agree with red powder either. Um, maybe that's just what it looked like to the person watching it. But Well, I mean, well, we'll get into it, but that's what... That's what it was supposed to do. It was supposed right. to spread red But it doesn't powder. do what it was supposed to do. Anyway, we leave you now with the trailer for Super Fuzz. Meet America's newest superhero, David Speed, Super Fuzz. He's a whiz in the pool hall, a marvel in the parking lot, and one of the best bullet catchers in the business. Meet Super Fuzz, the craziest cop this side of Inspector Clouseau. Super Fuzz, a blockbusting, high flying, water walking, smooth talking, fleet footed, skydiving, hard driving. Crime fighting, all American hero. Super Fuzz, just for the fun of it.